Today I'm continuing my series in the Old Testament, and we're at part 53 of that, and as part of that we're doing the prophets, and we're part uh, three of our like mini-series on the prophets. And if you, i just give you a tip, if you want to preach, if you're looking for sermons to preach at any time that are kind of easy and uplifting, don't go for the prophets, you know. It's tough. It's hard work. But we, we need to tackle it. We need to deal with these issues because there's a, it's a lot of the Bible and we need to understand how to approach it. So um, quick summary of last time. Oh, I'm going to speak today on the prophecies against other nations that we find taking up a lot of the prophetic writings. Last week, I basically gave three points. First of all was that the the... Generally, the, the prophets are calling people back to the covenant agreement that they made with God. The covenant relationship with God made in, in Sinai and in the book of Deuteronomy, where God said, you know, you'll be my people, I'll be my God, but this is how you should live. And basically saying, this is not how you've been living, and you need to move back to that. So the prophecies are grounded in calling people back into that relationship. The second point I made last week is ancient literature is not like modern literature where you start at the beginning, you just move through in a series of points to the end and it's kind of, it's, it's got this sort of linear flow. Ancient literature is often very different and often there's, there's a structure to it that is not linear and we need to understand their rules and not make them work by our rules. And I gave some examples last week, um, in, in, uh, Isaiah and looking in Isaiah chapter five at the way things work there. And then my last point last week was social justice was the primary issue that we saw coming up in in the passages we looked at, where, where Isaiah was really just telling the nation how, how wrong they were. And underlying it all was that basically it was abuse of the poor, it was, it was taking bribes, injustice, like total corruption, and not unfailing to care in the way that God wanted them to, to, to mirror him who is concerned about those who in need. And so social justice, we saw a particular word pair that often you see justice and righteousness is paired together in the, in the Hebrew text. And that word pair means social justice. And it's used 16 times in the book of Isaiah. So, um, today I, I finished last time by, with two points. And a number of people spoke to me afterwards and they were really interested in that. And, um, well, today I'm going to expand on those two points. And one of those points was that all prophecy is actually contingent. That means it, it, it might not actually happen depending on the response of the people. And, uh, the purpose of the prophecy is so that God won't have to bring it into effect. He'll be able to relent from those words. God's heart is not to do those things. God's heart is not to destroy. And the second thing I meant was, which follows on from that, which is, I, I said that God is grieved by judgment. God is, even when the wicked um, do terrible things, his heart is that they should turn. His heart is that they should not be worthy of judgment because he doesn't want to judge them harshly. Uh, 
And what I'm going to do is particularly expand with some examples today taken from prophecies from other nations. And huge chunks of the Bible, nearly a quarter of Isaiah, is prophecies against other nations. And these can be problematic for us because they can seem very violent in places. And we're not, what's it all about anyway? Why, why spend so much time on this? And, you know, if you're reading a chapter a day in your daily devotions and you get stuck in a, you know, a 12-chapter sequence against other nations, you might, you know, you might think, I want a bit of a reprieve from this. Um, it's kind of wearing. What is this for? And I'm going to address this very, very difficult issue, and I hope we're going to give us some some interest and some some blessing from this. And once again, um, I would strongly recommend this book by Dr. Peter Gentry, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets, which is a not a big book, but it's a fantastic book as a basis for understanding um, uh, the... the um, this work, and he's one of the world's foremost, um, I believe, one of those foremost scholars in this area. Okay, um, prophecies against other nations. So three points today. God's reluctance and grief over judging. The second, and we're going to look in, uh, in Isaiah for that. The second, all prophecy is provisional. We're going to look in, um, in Jonah. And then back to Isaiah, the goal of prophecy being salvation. And my goal for you is we want to address the problem of why there is so much long and harsh condemnation of other nations in the Bible and to learn more about the heart of our God and how we can be like him, which might seem surprising until you see what we're going to see in the prophets. So that's the introduction over. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading now. And before we go into the first section, a word about structure. Reading and studying the Bible may not be straightforward for readers with a modern and Western background in culture and language. The biblical texts in origin are ancient and Eastern. They come from a different culture and a different time. So, and this is the the, uh, the most important thing we're going to see today. The normal pattern of Hebrew literature is to consider topics in a recursive manner, which means a topic is progressively repeated. It's not just said once, it's repeated. And often it's repeated the second time with the order completely switched around to the first time. We're going to see some... Three examples of this in our passages today. So, we're going to look then at um, Isaiah 15 and 16. And this is a prophecy about Moab. And the first, the first point, uh, you see this, it goes A, B, C, D, B, C, A. The first point, Moab will be destroyed very suddenly. And that's how it starts out. And it ends with the same thing. Moab will be destroyed very suddenly. And then that brackets, those are like the brackets on the prophecy. Then there's a lament, the Moabites lamenting, and then God grieving over what's happening. We get the same thing here, Moabites lamenting, God grieving. And in the middle, we get an extraordinary statement, which you're going to see, which, because it's in the middle, in Hebrew poetry, this has pride of place. This is like, this is the pinnacle of the work. 
And this is what we are to pay specific attention to. And I think you'll agree that it is, it does set the whole thing in a different light when you see it. So let's look at the beginning. An oracle concerning Moab. Indeed, in a night it is devastated. Our of Moab is destroyed. Indeed, in a night it's devastated. Kir of Moab is destroyed. And then we have this ending with something similar. The Lord has already spoken of this about Moab. But now, the Lord says, within three years, like a servant's contract, Moab's splendor and her many people will be despised and her survivors will be few and feeble. So you can see those match the beginning and end match quite nicely there. Now we have a lament. We're going to look at verses two through four. They went up to the temple. The people of Dibon went up to the high places to weep because of Nebo, Mediba, Moab, Wales. Those are the names of their gods. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets, they wear sackcloth on their roofs and in their town squares. They all wail. All of them wail. They fall down weeping. The people of Heshbon and Elea cry out. Their voices are heard as far away as Jehaz. For the this reason, Moab soldiers shout in distress. Their courage wavers. So there you have this lament about, and there you have what's actually going to happen. And this is remarkable because here, God is expressing his own feelings about doing this. God says, my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Elgath Sheliziah, for at the ascent of Luhith they shall go up weeping on the road to Horonaim, they lament their destruction. The waters of Nimrim are gone, the grass is dried up, the vegetation desolate, and nothing green is left. And so what they have made and stored up, they carry over the brook of willows. They, their cry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches Eglaim and Beer Elim. The waters of Dimon are full of blood, but I will bring still more upon Dimon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and the people left in the land. So this is pretty bad stuff. I read it all. I mean, you get the gist probably in the first few verses, but I wanted you to see all of this stuff. But it's prefixed by God saying, like, my heart cries out. I'm grieved about doing this to you. I'm grieved about doing this. And the same thing happens here. Um, there's a lament. And it, I'm not going to read it. It's the same kind of thing. It's all about their vines drying up and everything. Um, and then uh, God's grief. Joy and happiness disappear from the orchards. The vineyards no one rejoices or shouts. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab like the strumming of a harp. And this is the idea of, you know, when your heart is beating, um, it's like boom, 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 boom. And it's like somebody putting their fingers over the bass strings of a harp and this, this boom, boom, boom. And this is what God is saying. My heart laments like the strumming of a harp. My innermost being for Kira... Uh, Haresteth, when the Moabites plead at their high places till they're worn out and still go to their shrines to pray, it will be to no avail. So this is, God is putting this here in the prophecy for us to pay attention to, 
that his goal is not to bring the destruction. His goal is for their good. But what really opens up this prophecy is where we see the middle. So we started with the destruction, we end with the destruction. Then we've got lament and God's response, the lament and God's response. So what's going to happen in this? So here we have a command to them, send rams as tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah in the desert to Mount Zion. In other words, bring your offerings to God like fluttering birds driven from the nest saw the women of Moab at the fords of Arnon. So they're just on the borders now with Israel. These fleeing women, these, these refugees, what's to happen? He's commanding now um, Israel. He says, bring a plan, make a decision, provide shade in the middle of the day, hide the fugitives, do not betray the refugees, let the Moabite fugitives live among you, Shelter them from the destroyer. The oppression will come to an end and the destroyer will disappear from your land. Then a kingdom of love will be set up. In the faithfulness it will be, in faithfulness it will be ruling. One from David's family going in justice and quickly bringing righteousness. So we get these two words, um, justice and righteousness, which is the Hebrew for social justice when they get put together in the same sentence. So what's happening here is God is commanding Israel, you are actually to be the one who welcomes these refugees in and actually provide for them what they weren't getting in their own land. And in fact, this is pointing forward to Jesus Christ because here it's talking about one from David's family judging injustice. Now, the line of David, we know, went through the kings of Judah and various kings were, who were in the line of, of David. But the line of David was to come to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so, if you like, this prophecy is for us. We are to receive this. We are, this, this, this ends up with us. And what this is saying is there is war in this world. There are horrible things happening. God is grieved by this. But the most important thing at the center of this prophecy is that God's people show his justice and righteousness. And we are willing to demonstrate God's heart to these people. As, as many of you know, we've had the blessing of one of our, one of the people we support at the church here is in Poland, and she's been organizing, um, uh, uh, places for refugees from Ukraine to come, and the church has welcomed them in, and we've been able to send a lot of finances from New Life Church to the, to the community there who are providing wonderfully for the Ukrainian refugees. And so what we're doing is, and many other churches are doing similar things. I'm not just trying to lift up New Life Church, but many are. And this is what God wants us to do. God wants our response in this, in this chaos that you see around, to be the people who, um, who bring justice and righteousness into this world. And, and faithfulness and fairness. A kingdom of love, he says, a kingdom of love. And I want to suggest to you that this was never actually fulfilled properly in the Old Testament times. 
It was never really, it's pointing forwards to what the final, the future kingdom of love should be. And unfortunately, um, there's often not a lot of it in the Christian church. And this is, a, I think, a very important call to us that we need to demonstrate this to the world in the midst of warfare and crisis. And so I want to um, just uh, close this up again to show you how this works again. Right in the middle of this description of the destruction that's happening in this world, God, the, a destruction that God is grieved about, God is saying, yes, but my people have an opportunity of demonstrating my true heart in this situation. So that's the, the, the first one that I want to talk about. That's the first uh, me, uh, item that I've got, which is, which is God's um, reluctance and grief over judging. God's reluctance and grief. And now I want to move on to the second point, which is that God's prophecy is provisional. And you're going to see this, I think, very clearly in this story. So this is Jonah, and Jonah's chapter 3 and 4. And we start off with God speaking to Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. And it ends up with a conversation with Jonah and God, which we'll come to in a minute. So Jonah preaches disaster. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That's how long it took to get from one side to the other of the city. Pretty big. Uh, and archaeology has reinforced that, that the scale of that. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is the word that God had given him. He's preaching the prophetic message God had given him. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He understood the, the reason for the destruction. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I'm just going to stop for a moment and ask you a question. Why would one crazy prophet walking into this huge city have such an effect? Like one man do it, causing this to happen? Why is that? Yeah? The Holy Spirit, that's right, God's word is powerful, isn't it? It's God's word, and it it lands in their hearts, and the Spirit gives life to his word. So this is amazing, and that it, it, and this, I think we have to remember, that this is God's word, this prophetic word, and it's like the seed that goes forth, and in this place, it lands on good ground. So, what happens when Nineveh repents? 
Uh, well, we got, got Jonah preached the disaster. Now we have God relenting. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented from the disaster. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. So I, that's amazing. That's like, this is, this, I don't have to tell you why I'm, I'm showing you this prophecy. You, I'm sure you completely get that it supports my point. The prophecy is provisional and the goal of prophecy is to produce change. So are you, I don't know if you know how Jonah responded to this. Oh God, I'm so glad these people aren't going to die. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Look, you've given me something. Look, what are they going to think of me? You know, they're going to think I'm a false prophet. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I ran away. Because I know the kind of God you are. You don't keep your word. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that amazing? Well, I mean, what's horrible is that Jonah should not want to serve a God like that, but he's absolutely right. Therefore now, O God, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry and should not? I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 12,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle. So we see Jonah rightly understood God's heart, that God wanted the prophetic word to actually change them. And I think so it's very important for us to understand this, um, what can seem like some just horrible condemnation after condemnation, having a goal of turning people around, which actually sometimes happened. Actually sometimes happened. So um, that's uh, another example of of the prophecy like the, the, the structure, where we have this kind of key item in the middle and we have matching pairs of, of items each round it. Um, and uh, that's, so that's, I think, um, useful to see. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was the, the fact that, um, that God was reluctant and full of grief to condemn people in prophecy. The second one was that prophecy is provisional and the goal is that it shouldn't happen. And I'm going to deal now with something that goes further than that. That the goal of the prophecy, the goal even when it's destruction, is ultimately for salvation. And uh, this is, um, this is really, really interesting. Um, well, to me anyway, I hope you find it interesting. But this is Isaiah 19 and 20, a prophecy about Egypt. A prophecy about Egypt. And we start off with, um, Judgments are going to come on Egypt and all the things are going to happen um, about the Egyptians panicking. I'm not going to read through all of this, but um, it talks about 
I read verse 5, the water of the sea will be dried up, the river will dry up and be empty, the canals will stink, the streams of Egypt will trickle and then dry up, the bulrushes and reeds decay. And you get the idea. Lots of bad things are going to happen. Um, and um, the verse 11, the officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. Pharaoh's wise advisors give stupid advice. And it goes on to describe what's going to happen in this destruction. And uh, then chapter 20 also talks about these immediate judgments that are going to happen. And immediately, in the immediate future, um, there's going to be an attack by king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is going to come and um, uh, it says, actually, let me just read this because this is kind of interesting. Verse 3, then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. Poor poor Isaiah had to walk around (laughs) barefoot and and stripped for three years like to to embody the prophetic word that he's giving. And um, he's um, not an easy job being a prophet in those days. And uh, it says... um, Verse 6, in that day, the people who lived on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and the deliverance from the king of Assyria. How can we escape? So several mentions of Assyria. Assyria was the other superpower. Two superpowers, Assyria and Egypt. And God is saying, actually, Assyria is going to defeat Egypt in battle. So what's going on here? What's the purpose of this? Well, God is predicting the future, and of course that authenticates him as being God. But that's not the the real goal. The goal is in the middle. The goal is sandwiched between these two statements of what's going to happen. And uh, the goal is uh, quite remarkable, so I'm going to read it all in detail here. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty, one of them will be called Haheres. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender. He will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague, striking them and then healing them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. Wow, not just the Egyptians, but the Assyrians worshiping God as well. In that day, Israel will be the third, not first nation, the third nation along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, 
my inheritance. I'm just so moved when I read this because this is just extraordinary passage of scripture. So let me ask you a question. Um, has this been fulfilled? Yes, he wants to say. Tell me what you mean by that. Okay, there's a church in Egypt and in Assyria. Yeah. So I want to say it's been partially fulfilled, but there is a fuller fulfillment to come. So let me tell you why I think it's been partially fulfilled. Um, you look, if you look at the, um, that the, uh, the way the gospel spread, Egypt was really uh, um, initially one of the hearts of Christianity. In fact, um, Augustine, some of you may have heard him called Saint Augustine, but, you know, we're all saints. But Augustine, one of the church fathers, was probably the greatest theologian in, the, in ancient times and really laid, came to an understanding which most churches today are based on, and he's Egyptian. So, you know, it's the Egyptian heritage that... The, the church was built on. The first nation to actually adopt Christianity as their national um, uh, faith was actually Assyria. So, in fact, the Assyrian church was very strong and the Egyptian church was incredibly strong. And so there was, in the time of the early church, an immediate fulfillment of this. However, um, uh, I... I um, I believe that its full fulfillment is still to come. I believe that uh, there are prophecies that say things like, God's kingdom will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I'm looking for a great revival. And I think that um, certainly from these prophecies, we're going to see great revival in Egypt and in, in Assyria. And I don't take these as like national boundaries, like whatever is the current national boundary. Like I think... From their perspective, Egypt would have been Africa. You know, it would have been, you know, they wouldn't have defined a narrow territorial boundary. And the same way, Assyria would have been like the whole of, of um, the Middle East. And so I see the, um, uh, the, the idea being there are two power structures which are totally against the gospel, trying to destroy the gospel. They're going to turn out to be the heart of the gospel. They're going to be turned, instead of being the enemies of God's people, they're going to be called my people. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork. So what's going on here then? Um, I think it's very important that we see here the, um, the way that this is put in the middle of this. Let me just come back up and see it all. The way this is put in the middle of this prophecy. And as we've seen in Hebrew poetry, right in the middle, the most important thing, the pinnacle, and this being the goal for the prophecy about Egypt. So my, what I've been trying to do is to encourage you this morning against the notion that the God of the Old Testament is just nasty, he's just a, a horrible God, and we have to wait to the New Testament before we get a God of love. I'm trying to argue against that, that actually it's because of a wrong reading of the Old Testament. We're, we're just reading quickly, and we're not seeing delicately woven in our ideas, and we're expected to read this throughout all of the prophets. It's given here, but it's not like it, we should intuitively read it in, now it's been revealed to us. So this leads us to the question then, how do we respond to this? How are we as people to respond to this? Well, 
Um, there's actually a really, Jesus has preached my sermon for me here, because Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now the word perfect there, it's um, a better translation. The Greek word translated perfect has got the idea of complete. And so a better idea would be that not perfect, but not being half-baked but being, being, um, um, going all the way. So you, I would translate, you must therefore go all the way. Don't be half-baked. Just as your heavenly father, he goes all the way. He's not half-baked. He's going all the way in terms of loving his enemies. And, uh, I, I, I want to leave you with some very definite and practical things to say to you. Um, how much hope is there for change in despicable people? You probably know some people in your life who are just really, really bad news, really nasty people. And we can jump to assumptions and conclusions about them and not see that God's heart is for them to change. Um, we live in a culture that jumps to conclusions. You're either good or bad. Back in... Um, in July 1977, there was a man in New York City called David Berkowitz who who killed six people and wounded seven others. And he escaped, and he went on to kill other people, and he would taunt the police beforehand what he was going to do. He just delighted in, in putting out like messages. They didn't have Twitter then, but he would like public messages, this is what I'm going to do next, and try and taunt the police. Like, personified evil. Well, they caught him in the end, and he was given life imprisonment. He's still in prison right now. I looked it up, and there's a Wikipedia page about him. He's still in prison. But, remarkably, what happened to him is that in in um, 1987, ten years later, due to the love of a Christian, he became a Christian. Previously, he'd called himself Son of Sam, and he used that meant Son of Satan. Like he, he was like, saw himself, he, he put himself out as being satanic. He did a complete change and called himself Son of Hope. And started like totally changed his behavior. He runs all kinds of counseling programs in the prison now. He's like, he did a degree. He's, he's really, his life is dramatically different. And what's happened there? Well, it's the Spirit of God. He was saved actually reading the Bible. What somebody in love gave him this Bible and persuaded him to read it, and he just spent time reading it, and he just encountered God in the Bible and was saved. And um, I want to say to you, we need to we need to have a response of the most wickedness, the most evil thing. We don't give up on. We don't say there's no hope, but God loves. And you may have people in your life who are just causing you trouble. They are, maybe you know, maybe it's a boss at work or maybe it's someone else, maybe it's a family member, somebody who just causes trouble. And Jesus says to be like God is to go all the way in loving them.
To be like God is just to show this compassion. And of course, this is what Jesus did with us. We were no better than these nations. We were no better than Egypt or Moab or Nineveh. And God sent his son to die for us. This is the heart of God. And so if we're going to understand God's prophecies against the evil nations, we have to see ultimately in the big plan. We are those nations. We are those people. God, in his love, gave Jesus for us and calls us to be the same, to go all the way in loving the unlovely, loving those in our lives who have not deserved of love. Well, I hope this challenges you today. I hope this challenges you that... Um, that that God is extraordinary. God is amazing. Certainly as I've been reading these verses and reading this about God, I am just so deeply moved at, at this God that, that is my God and he loves me. And I just want to praise him that he is so good. And so let's just bring some words of praise to him now. Father, we want to lift your name up and say, Lord, we thank you that you've given your son for those who hate you. You've given your son for those who murdered him. Lord, we thank you for your love to us that we were we were without hope we had nothing to recommend us yet yet lord you loved us lord we pray that you would put that love in each one of us in this coming week that we would surprise people by the way we respond to evil we respond to it not not agreeing with it but with a love that offers the hope for change. Lord, we pray, give each of us wisdom in our own lives in how to show your justice, your faithfulness, your compassion. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.